Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness, where we will be sharing insights into the world of mental health and wellness as we explore traditional medicine and holistic healing options. It's time to have new conversations about mental health. Join Mara James, the founder and CEO of the Hugs for Life Healing Center, as she guides us along this journey. And now, let's talk wellness. Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness. I am your host, Mara James, and I want to say thank you for joining us for today's conversation. During Let's Talk Wellness, we focus on healing, understanding, growth, and spirituality. This is part of the Hugs for Life Healing Center, which is part of the nonprofit organization, Extraordinary Lives Foundation, where our mission is to improve children's mental health and wellness and support families. As the founder of these organizations, I have the great joy of collaborating with a team of amazing people to help bring healing to children and families around the world. You can find out all of our information at elfempowers.org, and you can find this link in the show information. Now, let's talk wellness today with our guest, Dr. Adrian Matros. Adrian is a licensed clinical psychologist who volunteers a lot in the community. Welcome, Adrian. Hello. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being able to chat with you today. Thank you. Oh, I, we are so grateful. So tell us, first of all, did you know when you were younger that you were interested in psychology? Yes, I always knew I wanted to help people. And I was thinking about this when I talk to young people. I, I like to do, go to high school classes and uh, speak to them about careers and um I'll share with them that I, I believe it was seventh grade. I knew I wanted to help people. I wasn't sure if it was down the path of social services, psychology. Um, and I got that from my parents. Um, both of my parents were very kind and generous in the community. And uh, I talked about a particular um, incident that happened when I was, I, I think I was in fifth grade. And there was an elderly woman trying to cross the street with a shopping cart. And my mom yelled at, yelled at me, I don't know, yelled at me and my brother, I have two brothers and said, get out and go help that woman. And we're, no, we don't want to get out of the car. And uh, I got out and helped that woman across the street. And I never forgot that. And that kind of put a, a bug in me that um, it feels good to help other people. So that that's, where, so that's where I think it began. Yeah. Wow. So you're about 10 years old in fifth grade when that happened. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I also think it's kind of in your DNA, right? I mean, that definitely probably initiated it. Probably. Um, so then what, and then in high school, college, did you study, what did you study? Oh, psychology. So I decided to go down the path, uh, had opportunity uh, to go to school and I knew I wanted to become someone who helps other people. And I explored both fields, social social work, social services, psychology, and decided to go down the path of psychology and ended up uh, getting scholarship because I'm mixed ethnicity. I'm indigenous Native American and uh, got a scholarship. And I went to Cal State Long Beach and got a, a bachelor's degree in psychology and then went on to get a master's degree. And then I needed uh, money more than I needed education. So I worked about 15 years in the field and went back and got another master's and a doctorate degree in psychology. Wow. And when you were working for those 15 years, what, where were you one place, different places? <laughs> a lot of places. I was thinking about that this morning. Um, I worked with, uh, uh, now we say 
special needs or those with developmental disabilities. I worked in state hospitals. I worked in facilities with back then labeled uh, profoundly mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. I worked with children with autism and kind of specialized in that for about 12 years, working in different facilities in the school system, special education, and then went back to school to wow. get the, another master's and a doctorate degree. Amazing. You must be a very patient person, right? It takes a special person <laughs> to be able to work with some challenging. Uh, now I look back on that and, and I, I, um, I'm really proud to say that my, my first job in the field, I was working for General Dynamics in a factory when I was in college. And um, I had an opportunity to go from making $15 an hour to $3.25 in the field. So I went to work at a facility and it was with severely, profoundly, uh, developmentally disabled children. And it was a very challenging environment. And I, I learned, I learned patience. I learned even more patience by working in that field and, uh, found that I had, I, I guess I had a knack for it, that I was good at it. And I, I moved up the ranks and became a supervisor and a program manager and, and, um, then I went back to school, but what happened in that first facility I worked at, it was in uh, El Monte, California at Christmas time, they encouraged the staff to take home residents if they're, if they're able to leave, most of them are able to, some of them had very, uh, aggressive behaviors. Uh, some of those, uh, children that, that had autism, but I took this one boy home. He was four years old. And I'll get a little bit emotional telling the story. Uh, he was four years old. His family had sent him here. He was uh, King, the Prince of Prince Al Raji from Saudi Arabia, had a son who was born with cleft palate and severe dis- severe disabilities, no speech, um, very difficult walking, and probably was about a nine month old in his mental capacity, did not speak, did not, um, we taught him sign language. Anyway, he was the kid, I I admit, he was the kid that I liked the least in the entire facility. And I took him home and my parents fell in love with him. And my parents ended up getting permission for him to live in our home. And I still lived at home. I was in my twenties. I still lived at home and he became my little brother. And he learned sign language. He learned some words and he didn't wear a diaper anymore. He lived in our home for, I believe it was almost two years. Maybe it was longer than that. Um, And his father heard that he had done so well. He wanted to visit him and he came to our home to visit him. And he had an old entourage pulled up, brought gifts for my family, for my parents and said, oh, we want to take him out to lunch. And never brought him back. Oh, wow. Don't know what happened to him. My parents did everything they could to find him and never found him. Well, we're assuming there's good news that. Uh, hopefully that he, he became so normal and not observable, you know, challenges that uh, he wanted to take him back to Saudi Arabia. He was, wow. he was uh, I believe he was 11 by then. Yeah. Wow. So he was with you for seven years. He was at the facility for a number of years when he was four. And then he ended up coming to our home for at least two years. I can't remember exactly how many years, but 
uh, you know, that was it was a it was a great story. And my oh. my my mother still will speak of him. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh. Um, what inspired you to bring him home if he was your least favorite um person? <laughs> I like challenges. <laughs> I like working in challenging environments and so you chose it. You I no chose it. I chose it. Nope, nope. I said I'm gonna take this kid who I like the least home. Oh my God, that is so unbelievable. Wow, that must have been um, really heart-wrenching when he didn't come back. But knowing that what you did for him, um, you know, for him to be accepted back into his family. Right, right. Wow, wow, wow. And, you know, I have a son that, you know, six years old was diagnosed with Asperger's and ADHD. And it's a miracle story of 25, but God helped me through it. And I was never a patient person. And, you know, you're, it's great that you have that training because that's something um, a lot of us parents with um, gifted yet challenging, uh, behaviorally, emotionally challenged children could really use, you know. Um, wow, what an amazing story. So then where did you get your P, your, um, the, your psych, is it not a PhD? Is it PS? PsyD, yeah, of PSY. So that's a doctorate in psychology. Okay. Um, I went back to school in 91. And then in 93, uh, maybe it was 94, um, I completed the doctorate degree. And um, yeah, got my license passed and have had my license ever since then and then do, how did you do you use it did you start working like creating your own private practice I did and I was also thinking about this the the first half of my career uh was interesting the second half of my career was rewarding and fulfilling <laughs> the oh, first and part of my career I worked in the federal prison I worked for the um, bureau of prisons and I worked in uh, federal prison at Terminal Island. I worked at Metropolitan downtown. I worked in uh, Chino State Prison, uh, teaching HIV, doing HIV education and prevention. Uh, so I worked in a number of prisons and I did, I did love all of those jobs. Uh, I also worked for numerous organizations for AIDS uh, back in the 90s when the AIDS, I'll say epidemic was very present and Many people were dying from AIDS. I worked at AIDS Service Center in Pasadena and uh, as, a, as a therapist, as a psychologist, and also Children's Hospital, working with uh, families of families that had AIDS or children that had AIDS. And um, that was probably for about five years I did wow. that. And then in working at Covenant House, a homeless shelter for 18 to 22-year-olds, I did that for six years. And then we decided to move to Orange County in 2000, 2001. So we moved to Orange County. I gave up my private practice uh, or practice that I had in Pasadena and then um, became a volunteer, a professional volunteer after that and have loved every minute of that. Wow. And when you moved here, did you move with your family? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, we had one child left at home and um, moved to, to Orange County and he started seventh grade in Orange County. Wow. And we still live in Orange County. So. Right. Yeah. So you say a professional volunteer. What does that mean? <laughs> I love that. I think for me, it means that I can choose the organizations that I want to work with. I, I think the organizations where I have the greatest impact, it's not about writing a check. It's about really making a difference and having an impact on the lives of the people that, that uh, I have the opportunity 
or I will say in many cases, it's the privilege of, of volunteering for these organizations. And I sit on several boards and volunteer and back up my, my um, back up all my banter about volunteering by volunteering. I would say pretty much six, seven days a week. I would say eight days a week. Maybe. Right. <laughs> and what's amazing about you, I mean, we're blessed for, uh, for you to be in the advisory board for Extraordinary Lights Foundation. You're always such a guiding light for us. Um, so share about, because you're involved with so many different organizations and we need more you, Adrian's in the world. Um, so tell about the different ones and maybe I'll ask if you have a favorite, no, not judgment, but what really talks to your heart because you really, it's so beautiful. That's great. No, thank you for asking. And I will have to say children and adolescents, uh, that was my specialty at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles, children and adolescents. So when we moved to Orange County, there was not a, an inpatient mental health clinic center for children, for children under 12. So it was my mission uh, as being one of my goals uh, to do everything I could, raising money, talking to politicians, whatever it was, to create that in Orange County. And I... I'm, it's an honor to say that Orange County, Children's Hospital Orange County has the preeminent children's mental health inpatient center in the country and possibly in the world, treating children under 18, but specialty 12 and under, because those are far and few between. And it's, uh, it's actually a, a model that's there, many different hospitals are trying to scale what Chalk created. So I'm, wow. I'm so but let's let's start, let's start with chalk before you go into all the other sure. so many questions um so did they you said it's only one in orange county so when a family was having a crisis with a child that was under 12 what did they do unfortunately they would be it would be a recommendation that they ship them out of state uh, san diego could take some of them and stanford's up north but you think about what you're doing to a family, you know, that's rooted here in Orange County. Their foundation is here in Orange County. They were having to either send their child without an adult, without a parent to these places, Arizona, Utah. Uh, I can't even remember where all of them are. I think in Arizona, I know there's a children's hospital that has an inpatient center. But And I'm thinking, you know, seven years ago what happened. And, and I got very involved with a, a family who had a nine-year-old daughter who had severe emotional challenges. And she would run from school and go to the police station. Well, the police station would take her to the emergency department. And then when she's at the emergency department, they don't know what to do with her. What are they gonna put her inpatient for what? She has severe emotional challenges. They would recommend that she be shipped out of state. And that happened numerous times. And it was specifically from that that family that I really went in high gear into high gear to to ensure that we're able to provide treatment for children so I would I would say children and adolescents are you know kind of my core and and what I have the most experience with and also the focus um, we are never going to I'd say eliminate homelessness without looking at children and working with children and treating children and providing them 
giving them the attention and the necessary services. We will never eliminate homelessness because you can walk in any third grade classroom right now and take your pick. Three of those kids in a classroom of 20 will be homeless. And what are the contributing factors to, for their homelessness, right? And what can we do now preventatively? Uh, your program, I mean, Extraordinary Lives Foundation is so amazing because you're able to touch young, very young children. And that touch point is the impetus for, for adults to recognize that we can work with very young children. And it's very important that we do, that we start giving the attention to children. And what age, when you, what age range are you referring to? I mean, as, as young as three. Yeah. As young as three. But people don't realize that, you know. Um, and Pregnant I'm gonna... women. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, oh, you're, you're talking my language. Absolutely helping the pregnant women, helping themselves. It's so profound, right? Because the baby in the belly is experiencing all the emotions that the mother and maybe even both parents are, which is so interesting. You know, I just heard like um, someone said that when a woman a, a woman is um, has is pregnant with another a female a baby that baby already has the eggs, so it's that the all the grandchildren are it literally in not only the mother but in the grandmother. That is some is very profound. I absolutely believe that it's, it's intergenerational and it's, you know, and ancestral. And when we're able to recognize that, then we know how to treat pregnant women and uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing because people are start look, starting to look upstream. Right. right. And with, with my own children, I'll be the first to admit, I had zero for two parents growing up. I had zero of what they call the emotional um, resilience, emotional intelligence, right? Some social emotional learning, SEL is the buzzword. So I, you know, I couldn't teach my kids what I didn't know. And that's why, of course, with Piggy Bear, we're going to the three, four and five-year-old classrooms because, you know, th this is something that's so important. We teach the kids um, ABCs and one, two, threes. We need to teach them the ABCs of um, emotional literacy. Absolutely. Resiliency. You know, that's, that's what gets people through. And, and, it's interesting in these times now, we don't have the research and the data on Holocaust survivors. We mistakenly, mistakenly didn't discuss this with Holocaust survivors. How were you able to survive and that person next to you wasn't? And what, what created that resiliency in you? We don't know. We, we, have, we have ideas, but we don't know. We, we didn't get that testimony. We got the testimony of what happened to them, but we didn't get the testimony of how they came to not just survive, but to be resilient and and really, uh, um, you know, emotionally, physically, what what occurred there and what did we not learn and what can we learn from those that are survivors that we still have on this earth? What can we can we go back? Can we have conversations with them? because there's no greater data than Holocaust survivors. Wow, I haven't even thought about that, right? And you wonder if it has anything to do with their faith, their belief, um, who they were with and what they were being taught. Um, wow, yeah, that's really, um, definitely, you know, as a child having at least one person or something believe in you is so powerful. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But what about those kids that didn't? What about those kids that were orphans? What about, I mean, I know people that, had zero for parents, like you said, and what, what was it that helped them?
become successful and not go down the path of drug addiction, you know, alcohol and drug addiction or being in abusive relationships and all of those factors. What was it? And I don't think that we've done enough research on that. Yeah. You know, we, we, we take it face value and, and we're easy to blame. But what about the positives? You know, we talk about the aces, but let's talk about the positive, the P, right? The P, yes, the positive, yes. right, right. Positive. So you know what? I want to, we're going to take a brief break and I want to come back and that is perfect. We're going to start with what aces is and we'll go to paces. So we'll be, hold on everybody. We'll be right back. Thank you. In these shifting and changing times, more and more lives are being impacted by mental health. The Extraordinary Lives Foundation, also known as ELF, is transforming the way people view and navigate mental health challenges. Their mission is to improve children's mental health and wellness and support families by providing educational tools, resources, and awareness events. ELF encourages families to recognize symptoms, overcome the stigma, and reach out for help. Through prevention, early intervention, and holistic treatment, we believe many of the big problems facing today's youth can be transformed within a generation. Extraordinary Lives Foundation is excited to offer the Hugs for Life Healing Center, growing a worldwide network of approved holistic healers and bridging the gap between traditional and complementary healing options. Visit the Extraordinary Lives Foundation website at www.elfempowers.org to find out more about their resources and events. Together, we can change the conversation around mental health. We hope that you're enjoying today's Let's Talk Wellness podcast. And if you have a topic that you would like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. Simply email us at info at elfempowers.org. That's info at elfempowers.org. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Talk Wellness. I am your host, Mara James, and today we're speaking with Dr. Adrian Matris. Welcome back, Adrian. Hi. Hi there. So can you share with us what ACEs and then with the P in front uh, stand for? Sure. So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, and there are lots of ways to measure that and monitor it. Um, so PACEs are protective and compensatory compensatory experiences in childhood that buffer the negative effects of ACEs. Interesting. Yes. So tell me more about the second one. I don't quite understand. Can you give us an example? Yes, yes, yes. So so the nine ACEs uh, examples are physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, living with someone who abused drugs, living with someone who abused alcohol, exposure to domestic violence, living with someone who's gone to prison, living with someone who's has serious mental illness. So those are examples of ACEs. And then PACEs would be the positive in that environment, positive experiences that increase resiliency and protect against the risk for mental and physical illness. Okay. So if you, if you look at, if you look at um, having resources, um, being able to having that one adult in their life, whether it's a teacher, okay. Um, healthcare, having good healthcare, having access to medical care, having access to food and nutrition, having access to school, having access to shelter, 
those are positive experiences that can help offset the negative. They increase, I don't say they offset, but they increase resiliency and protect against the, the risk for mental and physical illness. Wow, interesting. And so now that was that, when did this come about? Cause that wasn't something that we grew up with. No, it was a study done um, by Kaiser and um, they, and what, why it's so popular now is that in a medical model, they're able to correlate ACEs with physical health. So mm. if you're exposed to uh, four or more ACEs, the likelihood of having physical health issues are so much greater diabetes, heart disease. So there's a, an exact correlation between ACEs and physical health, right? So childhood experiences. So uh, until Kaiser put out that study and made those connections, uh, it was a little challenging for the, for the uh, medical community to accept that mental health affects physical health. Mm-hmm. And so now we know because there's st- so many studies done and um, it was a great study. And I, and uh, the paces came about more recently. I, I maybe in the last four or five years, because we do know, like I had mentioned before, people that had grown up with either with no parents or not so positive parenting had have experienced a lot of trauma. How is it that they survived and became productive adults, let's say productive adults, successful adults, and it's not about the money, but emotionally, right, and physically, what happened, what went on there. So we're looking back now and saying, okay, they probably had some positive experiences that contributed to that to reduce their risk of the negative, right, adverse experiences, the trauma that they experienced. That makes perfect sense. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and I love that they did that and they related that the emotional, the mental health has a direct impact on your physical health. Yeah, anybody can look it up. It was done by Kaiser it, and it's 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 actually fascinating. And, uh, you know, the the former attorney general of California is the, is, uh, the one that really pushed this because she was part of that. She was part of that and uh, did that study with Kaiser and oh wow yeah it was that, it was yeah. it was Dr Nadine Burke Harris mm-hmm. wow yeah mm-hmm. beautiful wow that yep. was amazing wow <laughs> um so now what do you think like with volunteering how that affects one's mental health <laughs> you think it has a relation I mean to me like you know it's like heart like I always think like your heart affects your mental health right absolutely so something yeah so can you talk about that a little sure. And I, I think part of it is, and I can get emotional about it. I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm going to try and not get emotional about it. But, but knowing that I feel blessed every day. I think, I think maybe from seventh grade, eighth grade, I'm not sure what grade, but uh, when I brush my teeth in the morning, I'm grateful for the day. I'm grateful for the day. And all of the traumas that I've experienced, I am able to say, put those in a place that it's not that they didn't exist. They, they existed, they happened, but I'm able to say, what can I do? What can I do seeing outside of myself to help somebody else to help somebody else? And that's a good feeling. And we all should, 
we all should be able to have that experience and that feeling of feeling good because you're doing something for somebody else. Whether it's smiling or complimenting, I was in the elevator and, and the UPS guy looked really stressed out. And I said, hey, how are you? And think about it. People don't even talk to UPS drivers, right? They yell at them maybe. But anyway, he's delivering this big stack of boxes. And I said, oh, how, how, how is your day going? You know, I'm just checking in on He's like, you're the first person that's asked me how I'm doing. He says, and it doesn't even matter what I say. I'm so appreciative that you asked me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was such a simple thing, right? It's like smiling and, you know, we all smile kindness. in the same language, right? Kindness, so, kindness. So beautiful. And it's so easy to do. And it like, is. You made that guy's day, week, month, whatever. Wow. You have to see outside of yourself. And that, that sometimes that's really difficult to do. I clearly understand that people that experience severe trauma that are severely depressed, even, even anxious. Um, I can tell you a, a good example of, of someone who was suffering. So I, when I worked at Covenant House, we would go down to Mexico and build homes, right? For pretty much homeless families. There's these villages there where people come. Um, from the center of Mexico, maybe they're waiting, trying to cross the border. And this is many years ago, 20 years ago, or more. And I worked at Covenant House. And what's Covenant House? It's a homeless shelter for 18 to 22 year olds, right? They have nothing. They have nothing. We would take the residents of Covenant House to Mexico to see there'll always be someone who has less than you, but how you can have an impact regardless of what you have materialistically, it, it doesn't matter and how good they felt. And it first started with, with um, Big Sunday because uh, David Levinson, he started Big Sunday and he called Covenant House one day and he said, hey, how can we help out? And the spiritual, the spiritual um, leader at Covenant House said, how can we help you? And it was mitzvah day. And so they held a joint car wash and raised money. And it wasn't for Covenant House. It was to give to build for the shelters for the homes in Mexico. There's always a way. I, that is so yeah. priceless for those 18 to 20 year olds, 22 right. year olds. Right. It, it had to be life changing right there. Right. That you can always do something. And, and, always. and most of the time you feel good about it. You walk away. I do. And if, and I said, even, even all the time I was at Covenant House, I was a therapist and, and, I, I might have gotten a stipend, um, but I, I wasn't paid. And uh, I said, if I can change in a positive way, not change in a negative, change in a positive way, one person's life, all of those residents and the recidivism and everything, it was all worth it. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not sure if I answered your question exactly, but it's seeing outside of yourself that you, you, you can always, always, always find a way. Absolutely. You did. Um, but so here's a question. So when, you know, child's gone through some major trauma and they're, you know, like, I feel like most of us, if not all of us are in victim mode when we're young, because we're just not in control, our parents, society, the schools, whatever. Um, and then there's a point that hopefully people can start moving from, you know, life happens to me, that life happens for me out of victim mode. But when someone's in victim mode, can they see outside of themselves? Can they help somebody else or will helping somebody else help guide them from, you know, out of that? I, I believe that it doesn't happen in a bubble on the, on their own, that it takes someone in their environment, 
whether they see it on YouTube, whether they see it on, you know, social media, or there's an actual person. But it, it, it's, it's, it's challenging to, to, for someone to see outside of victimhood when they've, it, it's been successful and it's worked for them to be a victim. Yeah. Um, I, you know, somebody used to say to me, and I'll say, because you know that I, uh, we adopted for sisters. And so having a, a lot of kids in the home, and it was chaotic. It was very chaotic. And someone said to me, oh, you must thrive in chaos. And I would say, absolutely not. But for that time, I did. I survived. Yeah. I thrived. I went from surviving to thriving in chaos, never, never being a victim, but thriving in chaos. Was it healthy for me? Probably not. But I went back and forth between survival and thriving, right? And I'm making a difference in these kids' lives. And it was very chaotic and chaotic. And I now can look back and I say, my, my life is not chaotic. It's I'm, I'm blessed to the max. I, I feel so blessed. I could never give back what I've received and I'm able to see now, but I think when we're young and there's kids and then it's, it's very challenging. And I, I wouldn't expect anybody with young children to be able to volunteer and see outside of themselves, but that doesn't, that doesn't have to happen when you're a young parent. Being kind can happen at any age. Teaching kids to be kind Absolutely. Is, is easy to do. Yeah. And I, a lot of times I see like, you know, there's like groups like National Charity League, NCO, where the mother and the daughter will volunteer. And it's so beautiful. We were in an event this weekend with Piggy Bear. And this woman's like, I love what you do. Can we volunteer? And it was just so I, I, you know, this is where I want to have Piggy Bear book one day that's teaching like kindergartners or first, second graders how to do something for somebody else. Let's have a bake sale in the classroom or different things and raise one penny to donate to the dog shelter or whatever that feels, you know, it's very right. natural. And, right. you know, I feel Absolutely. like yeah, this is where teaching, you know, these precious children at a young age, you know, especially if you're in a lower income family, they're so bit, they're trying to work hard to just put food and, you know, pay, pay for shelter for their own family. You can't think past that. Right. Right. And the, the, we can do that in school. I mean, isn't there something um, about like the success? And I mean, emotionally, not monetarily of the future depends on like the emotional wellness of a child at a young age. I can, I think so. Um, I believe that. Uh, have, we, have we, have we proven that out? I don't know. I think when we look at the best statistics that we have are on resiliency, right? But resiliency from children nowadays that went through the pandemic and gathering data on that what we don't have is historical data because yeah. i don't believe that we've given enough attention to to young children and 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 if we say this is this is where we start and this is where we make children a priority um, this is what we need to do i to believe change to yeah. change the trajectory yeah and I think we could change the future generation. Like within one generation, we could change the future for everybody, right? Yes. So do uh, brag. I mean, tell us a little bit about all the different organizations you're involved with. Sure. Um, so Children's Hospital, Orange County. Um, I sit on a number of Jewish organizations on, on the boards. I'm on the, um, the local Marat JCC board of directors, and I'm on the national board of JCC Association. And I'm on the global JCC Global Board, 
and that is um, for Jewish community centers uh, around the world. Wow. Phenomenal. We just had a big um, Zoom yesterday from all around the world, from Ukraine. Uh, yep. Wow. Singing Hanukkah songs. It was beautiful. Mind you, it, yesterday was Sunday, everybody. So Adrian does work 24 oh. <laughs> 7. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, a Jewish Community Foundation board and um, also an advisor on your board and Radiant Health Centers, which uh, treats the uh, LGBTQ plus community. I might be leaving off board uh, volunteering at Samueli Academy in Santa Ana. Which are for and, foster kids, right? Yes, Orangewood is for foster kids and Samuel Academy also has foster children there. Right. Um, TLC? Tilly's Life Center. Yeah is a social emotional learning program that's in numerous schools and different organizations. And it's fabulous. And it works primarily with seventh through 12th graders. And it's um, a program to teach resiliency through social emotional learning skills. So amazing. So amazing. It, it's just, wow. That it's just going to be so heartfelling. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom with us. Um, if anyone wants to ever get in touch with you, are you on social media? Is there a way for people to reach out? And no one's allowed to ask her to be on their boards. <laughs> She's too, yeah, no, yeah. My plate is overflowing. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, if you put my email, that's fine. Okay. We can share that with everybody. Sure, sure. Amatrosetme.com, is that Sure. But got sure. memorized. Okay, put that in the link information. And I just want to say to you and all of our watchers and listeners out there that you are amazing. Absolutely. You are amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you, Adrian. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Wellness. This podcast has been brought to you by the Hugs for Life Healing Center, a division of the Extraordinary Lives Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you would like to listen to more conversations like this, we invite you to subscribe to our mailing list at www.elfempowers.org to be notified when our weekly episodes are published. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to bringing you our next conversation on Let's Talk Wellness.